John Adams was our nation's second president, first vice president. Adams was one of the leading voices in passage of the Declaration of Independence. We know that Jefferson largely did the writing. Adams was considered the voice in Congress for passing it. Once it was passed, Adams is said to have regularly worked 18-hour days as sort of a de facto secretary of the army, just working to stand up the army and equip the army for what was ahead. He was one of the first, if not the first, to use the phrase blood and treasure to describe the cost of warfare in terms of human lives and monetary costs. Adams served in Washington, often far from his home in Massachusetts, far from his family, and so there's an extensive record of his life and thinking in his letters. There's something like 1,100 letters exchanged between he and Abigail during the course of their life together. And in one of those letters, spring of 1777, Adams was describing how much he missed his wife and his children and their little farm, and he concluded with a statement that was intended for future generations, and he wrote this, posterity, you will never know how much it costs the present generation to preserve your freedom. I hope you will make good use of it. You'll never understand the cost, and I hope you make good use of that freedom. Freedom rarely comes without a great cost to bring about that freedom. It rarely comes without responsibility that goes with it. Freedom is rarely just unlimited without any restrictions. I remember, and many of you do, that feeling when you got your driver's license and then got my first car and there was that sense of freedom. And even then, it didn't mean I could drive everywhere I wanted, whenever I wanted, as fast as I wanted. There were still limitations on what I could do with that freedom. Our theme for the study of the New Testament book of Galatians has been freedom by faith. Three words trying to capture two big ideas of the book of Galatians. One is that there is freedom in Christ. There is freedom from the guilt and shame of sin. There is freedom from the condemnation of God's law. There is freedom in Christ. And secondly, and most important of all, that freedom in Christ only comes through faith in Christ. And as Paul has emphasized from the very beginning, that freedom can only come by trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ in his life and death and resurrection. If you turn to Galatians chapter 5, we are really in the home stretch of Galatians, picking up this morning in verse 13 of Galatians 5. We'll work our way through verse 18. And this, this passage sort of turns a corner in the book of Galatians. Up until this point, it has been largely instruction and assurance about one of the most crucial doctrines of Christianity, and that is justification by faith, the belief that we are made right before God by faith in Jesus Christ. We are all sinners. We all break God's law. We all stand guilty and condemned by God's law, and it is only by Jesus Christ taking in himself the punishment we deserve and trusting in that that there is life. Those who are lost apart from Christ... Scripture describes one of their conditions as being enslaved to sin. They are under the, the power of sin. That, that doesn't mean that everything they do 24-7 is as evil as it can possibly be. It simply means they are under this dominion of sin. And what they do is not going to bring pleasure to God. God has built in restraints. That, that sort of keep man from being as depraved as he can be. Um, the, the 
Holy Spirit working through believers works as a restraining influence in culture. The Holy Spirit working through brothers and sisters in Christ. Government that God has ordained provides some restraint on the culture. And conscience, God has put within each person a conscience to help bring about some influence of restraint. But none of those things diminish the fact that unbelievers are under the dominion of sin. By God's grace, he frees people through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And and justification is what allows guilty sinners, we know we are guilty, allows us to stand before the Father accepted by him because the righteousness of Christ has been put on us, has been imputed to us. And, And so what we've been seeing so far in Galatians is this emphasis on justification by faith. As a result of that, then, there is this freedom from the power of sin and the condemnation of God's law. The rest of Galatians now is, here's what you do with that freedom. Here, Galatians, here, brothers and sisters in Christ, here's what you have, and here's what that doesn't mean, and here's what it does mean. Here's what it means to have freedom in Christ. And so he is going to emphasize for us throughout this section not only the cost of that freedom in the suffering of Jesus Christ, but the opportunity that that freedom lends to each of us. There's also the need here for Paul in particular as he's writing to the Gentile believers in the churches in Galatia to explain to them how this freedom intersects with God's law. Because if you'll recall, this has been the stumbling block. Paul comes in, preaches this gospel of grace, trust in Jesus Christ, receive his grace. The false teachers come in afterwards and say, well, there's only so far you can go with grace. You got to have God's law. You got to be circumcised. You got to do the rituals and the routines. And, and so there's this, this dilemma now. Okay, if we have this freedom in Christ, how does God's law still fit? There's an ethical dimension to God's law. Not only did God reveal his law to reveal himself as being holy, to reveal us as being sinners and in need of a savior, but there's also a, an ethical dimension to how we are to live as followers of God. Despite all that Paul has said about the law's inability to save, he doesn't throw it out. He doesn't simply say, so forget it, don't worry about it anymore. But rather, he speaks to us about its importance still. In Romans chapter 7, he speaks of the law being good and holy, that it serves a purpose because we still serve a holy God, and it is his law. And so how does our freedom intersect with God's law? How do a redeemed people who are called to worshipful obedience of God, now as we reflect on who he is, how do we live in light of God's law and yet with this freedom? His message will be, you've been set free in Christ, but not for self-gain. You've been set free in Christ, but not to do whatever you want to do. You've been set free in Christ, not so that you can now go about and, and disobey and rebel and sin and pull the forgiveness card and say, see, I'm covered, so it's okay. You've been, been set free in Christ for a purpose. And that's what the balance of Galatians is dealing with. We have to assume that one of the things the false teachers did when they came in after Paul is said, listen, If all you ever hear from Paul is grace, 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 trust in Jesus Christ and be saved, then Paul is just rejecting God's law. Paul is just promoting lawlessness. And understand, this this culture of, uh, of the Galatians, they didn't have the TV and internet, but they had just as much immorality and vice and corruption and evil as our culture does. They were surrounded by it. And so you've got these sort of moralistic teachers coming in saying, 
all Paul's teaching about is grace, well, that's just going to lead to more sin and more lawlessness and more disobedience. And we're trying to, we're trying to bind you back to the law. And so Paul is also responding to that when he begins writing here. Look down at verse 13 of Galatians 5. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. All right, so this is this turning point now. We're moving largely from instruction about justification by faith and freedom in Christ now to the result of that. How do you live as a people who are now set free in Christ. There's a couple of commands in this passage that we'll see, a couple of very clear imperative statements. This is what you must do. But first, there's a couple of realities that he states that we need to understand. And the first reality is this. As believers in Christ, the freedom that we have in Christ offers us opportunity. Okay, that's the first thing in verse 13. There is opportunity and there is responsibility that comes with that opportunity with the freedom that we have in Christ. Second reality that we're going to get to is that as believers set free in Christ, we are thrust into the middle of a battle between the desires of our flesh and the desires of God's spirit. We'll come to that in a moment. But the first one, we have opportunity. Paul says it in verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. God has called you to freedom. We saw that back in verse 1 of this chapter, that you are set free in Christ. When he comes now to verse 13, he's basically picking up the argument that started in, in chapter 5, verse 1, which is for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Don't be enslaved to the law. And then he sets off on this section that again touches on the false teachers. He ends up in verses 10, 11, 12, talking about the false teachers and how they are destroying, trying to destroy the church. Verse 12, wishing that they would experience further judgment, the judgment of their own sin, that their own sin would, would, would ultimately be that which would cost them, as he deals with there in verse 12. And then he starts verse 13. The first word in that in the Greek is you. It's the pronoun. That's the emphasis word. He's talked about the false teachers, that they would reap what they sow from what they preach but you, he says, verse 13, you now, brothers in Christ, are free in Christ. So, with the opportunity of freedom, don't waste it. Just like John Adams said in that letter, don't misuse this opportunity. Don't waste it. The word for opportunity in verse 13 speaks of the onset of something, the, the occasion of something. And so it is, it is that moment of, of stepping into freedom and having before you this, this opportunity now to, to live differently, to, to be different. And right away, Paul says, this is not an opportunity to gratify the flesh. First thing he says is, don't understand, understand what this opportunity is not. It is not a license for you to do whatever you please. It is not unrestricted freedom. He says, to gratify the flesh, this word flesh shows up a lot in the New Testament. 
number of different meanings. Paul uses it more than anyone throughout the New Testament, that term flesh. Sometimes it has the very simple meaning of the body. Um, he uses it in Galatians 2.20, we know. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Saying the, the life I now live in, in my body, I live by faith in the Son of God. In Galatians 2.16, by works of the law shall no flesh be justified. He's using flesh there in the broadest of sense. No human being, no person is justified by works of the law. But here in, in chapters 5 and 6, when he uses flesh, he's using it in a very particular way. One that Paul often uses in the book of Romans, and that is to speak of this, this principle of indwelling sin. The reality that in the flesh, there is still the draw, the lure, the temptation for sin. For instance, Romans chapter 7 Paul's talking about our union with Christ, and he says in Romans 7, 5, for while we were living in the flesh, he's saying prior to joining Christ, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. As an unbeliever, you are driven by the flesh to please self, to do whatever self wants to do, and in fact, the law almost incites disobedience and that it becomes sort of this temptation. Because you tell me that I'm not supposed to do this, I'm, I'm all the more eager to try to find a way to do it. It's like the, um, the, the, the speed limit signs that like, keep track of your speed as you're coming toward them and they flash and they flash more intensely when you're speeding. And for some of us, I won't include any of you, but for some of us, that's sort of a challenge sometimes to see if you can set the high score you know, while you're driving down the road. Not a smart idea. But that's the incitement that he's talking about here is the law has this sort of, to the flesh, this, this appeal that says, well, I can do that. Why, why can't I do that? Why, why is somebody telling me I'm not allowed to do that? And so it's tempting me to do as I please, arousing sinful fleshly desires. He goes on in Romans 7, he just talked about, so when you were in the flesh, you were this way. But he goes on in Romans 7, and he says that even as believers, we're still in the flesh. We still wrestle with these desires. They're not banished at salvation. As much as we'd like to wish that at the moment we became believers in Jesus Christ, those desires would somehow, the, the power would be sucked out of them. The reality is those desires are still present. We are still in bodies that, that where sin remains, where the knowledge of its fleeting pleasure remains, where we are susceptible to temptation. And so there are these fleshly desires. And that's what Galatians 5 is getting at. That as believers in Jesus Christ, we are still dealing with living in bodies where the flesh is still at work. And life in the flesh is pitted against life in God's spirit. Life in the flesh is man-centered. It's about pleasing myself, doing what I feel, saying what I want. Theologian Timothy George writes, flesh refers to fallen human nature, the center of human pride and self-willing. Flesh is the arena of indulgence and self-assertion. This is the world that unbelievers live in and are under the dominion of, but as believers, the flesh is still the, the source of temptation. We are still tempted to gratify those fleshly desires. They still continue to war within us. The, the thing, I, I think one of the things Paul wants us to grasp as he's dealing with the flesh is we think flesh, we think superficial, we think external, 
And yet the reality is he's talking in terms of desire. He's talking about something that is within us, that where the battleground goes on in the heart. And so that's why in Romans 7 he describes these, these desires as still being alive and battling in our inner being. This stuff is at work in my heart seeking to lure me into disobedience to God, seeking to lure me into to self serving, trying to deceive me, trying to tempt me, trying to overpower me so that I would behave in ways that look anything but like my Savior Jesus Christ. And so the warning of verse 13 is necessary. You have not been given freedom as an opportunity for your flesh. You have not been given freedom so that you can now satisfy the desires of your flesh. He will, in in verses 19 through 21, get very specific about what these sorts of examples of desires look like. And you'll see that next week with the fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. But he says, if you yield to these desires of the flesh, then, then look what happens. Look what's happening, he says, even in your own midst. In verse 15, if you bite and devour one another, watch that you are not consumed by one another. It's not clear exactly the context of what he's saying here, what was going on, what he heard about the churches in Galatia, but presumably with the false teachers coming in, there's now dissension in their midst. There's now conflict in their midst. Perhaps there's disagreement over what's being taught. And, and, and instead of it being handled in loving, serving ways, it's now turning into self-centered conflict. I must win this argument to the point that I will destroy you if need be uh, in order to defeat you in this. And so he's warning against that, saying when we, when we follow the fleshly desires, it is that kind of destruction that results. Unbelievers are not able to pursue the things that please the Spirit of God, nor do they want to. They don't live to please God. They live to please self. If they do things that appear serving or sacrificial, it's because somewhere inside it's still driven by some kind of internal motive, some kind of self-pleasure, self-preservation sort of motive. But as believers... His whole point here is, you now have freedom, and so you have opportunity. Don't use that to gratify the flesh. Live differently. Second thing now, the second reality is down in verse 17. Let me read 16 just to get context. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Here it is. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Here's the second reality. As believers in Christ, set free in Christ, we are now thrust into the middle of an ongoing war between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Holy Spirit. That war is always happening between flesh and spirit. The the, the difference is, is that as believers... When we come to faith in Christ, we now have freedom and opportunity to see it. We now care about it. We didn't care about it before. We didn't care about the battle between fleshly desires and what the Holy Spirit wanted. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, we now have our eyes open to understand that there is temptation. We now see how our flesh is drawn toward laziness or anger or lust or dishonesty or jealousy or addiction. We now see how the flesh is at work against godly desires, against the Spirit's desires. We now see that we are in the midst of a war that doesn't let up. 
That's his description in verse 7. The desires of the flesh, they just... They are constantly against the Spirit. And what the Spirit desires is constantly against the flesh, all trying to keep you from doing what you want to do. So it's not like we're actually just being thrown into this war. The war was existing. It's that we are now having our eyes open to it. We now, as believers, see that we are part of it. And we are now equipped to do battle in that war. We were just on the losing side no matter what before. Now we are on a side that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can live differently. The flesh wants the opposite of what God's Spirit wants. The two are in total and opposite conflict throughout, and now we see it. Where the Holy Spirit wants me to be humble and repentant when I've done wrong, the flesh says, just blame someone else. It's not your fault. It's the circumstances' fault. It's that person's fault. It's her fault. It's your wife's fault. She started this whole conversation anyway. She, she told you to do this. It's her fault, right? Just blame her, right? That's what the flesh does. It's somebody else's fault. Where the Holy Spirit wants me to think clearly and make wise decisions and be on guard even before temptation comes to think about the vileness of sin and the grace of God, the flesh urges me, just go ahead and do what pleases you. Just just. Chill out, relax, and do whatever you want to do, whatever feels good in the moment. Certainly, God's okay with that if you're happy. And the, the reality is that, that most, if not all, popular, secular, modern love songs all go with this idea of it's, it's a feeling that's just overwhelming and you just follow it wherever it wants to go. You just do whatever feels like it's okay to you. The Holy Spirit wants me to be wise and discerning and on guard toward temptation. Where the Spirit says to not let my eyes linger on temptation, the flesh says, it's only looking. What, what's, what's the problem here? How can that hurt you in any way? Where the Spirit calls me to sacrificial service for the benefit of others, the flesh says, well, what's in it for me? Why isn't anybody serving me? I, I should be getting something out of this. And, and it's just, those are just a handful of instances where we see clearly the flesh desires one thing, the spirit desires the opposite. And we are in this constant tension. John Stott put it this way, we may say that the flesh stands for what we are by natural birth, the spirit what we become by new birth, the birth of the spirit. And these two, flesh and spirit, are in sharp opposition to each other. It is war. That's why I've called the sermon, This is War, because we are in an ongoing conflict between fleshly desires that call us toward disobedience, toward ignoring the things of God and the Holy Spirit. And so even when we experience victory over areas of temptation, the fleshly pursuits, the fleshly desires don't retire. They don't take a break at that moment and go, well, okay. He, he was victorious there, so we'll leave him alone for a time. No, because once I'm victorious, then the fleshly desire is to be proud then that I was victorious at that moment. See, I, I conquered that. Look, I'll give you three steps on how to deal with this from what I learned, right? Because it's a constant conflict between the two. We see these desires in our hearts, and we are called to battle them. I put at the end of your sermon notes two books, um, one uh, that we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, keeping in step with the Spirit. But um, Chris Lungard's older book, but excellent book on the enemy within. It's about sin. It's not about particularly Galatians 5, but it's about the deceit of sin and the indwelling nature of sin and the work of sin, the work of these fleshly desires 
to lead us into disobedience. This is one that you could probably read every year or two, and it would just be a good refresher course in how sin works and how it seeks to deceive us. If there's anybody here who wants to acknowledge that they struggle with sin, I'm happy to give you a free book all the way in the back. Jessica, I'll give it to you at the end. Thank you. Thank you for your honesty. Two-handed honesty, no less. Appreciate that. With you, sister. Thank you. Um, Two realities, then. Freedom leads to opportunity, and now this reality that we are engaged in this battle. So now two commands. First one is to love and serve others. Second is to walk by the Spirit. So in light of what we know about this opportunity, in light of this freedom that we have and this conflict between flesh and spirit, here's how we're called to respond. And so verse 13, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is Paul responding to even the hint of suggestion from the false teachers that he has rejected and dismissed God's law. The idea that that Paul has just said, it's all of grace, don't even think about God's law. Paul's response here is, no, you know what? I actually want you to obey God's law exactly as Jesus Christ commanded. When Jesus Christ was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, there's two. Love God with your whole being and love your neighbor as yourself. And he fulfilled it perfectly. And I am now urging you to do the same. We already know that that the command to love God is throughout Paul's letters. But here he specifies in on one, nails in on one, and says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor through service. It's interesting that in verse 13, after all that he said about freedom and slavery, remember back to five verse, chapter 5, verse 1, don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. It's all about freedom in Christ. When he comes to this one in verse 13, he says, through love, serve one another. And the Greek word for serve is from the, the, the root of doulos, which is slave. So he's saying, Christ has set you free so that you can, in love, enslave yourself to your neighbor. So that you can now take your neighbor's needs and priorities and seek to serve them and seek to to be of benefit to your neighbor. We get the chance now to offer ourselves to one another and to be engaged in mutual service alongside one another in love and care. This is, this is simply living out the model of Jesus Christ. As he said in Mark 10, 45, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is just being like Christ, looking for ways to serve not only my spouse and my children and my friends, but my neighbor, which we Jesus taught us in his parable, that neighbor is, is a lot broader than you think. It's that person you're crossing paths with that God has brought into your life in some way, and you can now look for a way to serve them and care for them. Instead of, and, and he does it in terms, again, put off, put on. The put off is verse 15. If all you do is engage in conflict and, and destroy other people, that's the put off. You need to put on in its place loving service of one another. I am here to be your servant, to care for you in whatever way would, would most honor God. So instead of getting wrapped up in the rituals and the rites of the Old Testament law, Jesus Christ boils God's law down to love God with your whole being, love your neighbor as yourself. And if we want to gauge then how we're obeying, fulfilling God's law, then we need to be asking ourselves questions like, how, how well do I serve other people? How gladly do I serve? How, how willing am I to serve other people? When I see needs in other people, 
Am I proactive in seeking to try to meet those needs? Am I trying to demonstrate the love of Christ in sacrifice for others? That's the first command. Second one, verse 16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Second command is to walk by the Spirit. Paul has already identified in Galatians who he means by spirit, not talking about the spirit of man or some vague, amorphous sort of spirit. He's already said back in chapter 3 that this is the spirit of God. This is the Holy Spirit, the one who, who brings you into union with Christ, the one who Jesus promised that you would receive when you trusted in him. So there's no question here that he's talking about the Holy Spirit. The spirit who now is in you is able to empower you. The fleshly desires are real and constant and strong, and yet the source of your strength to overcome them, to resist them, to put on godly behavior is God's Spirit. So the passions of the flesh are strong, but it's clear here from what he's promising in both 16 and 18 that the Holy Spirit is even stronger. But, he says, it's conditional, verse 16, that you must continue to walk in the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The verb for walk, present active imperative. That means in an ongoing, continuous way, you are commanded to do this. The, the Jewish readers in his day, the, the Gentile readers, understood the same thing in that culture. We're talking here about moment-by-moment moment practice. Living by reliance on and submission to the Spirit of God, and the belief that He is the one who empowers me, who enables me to live differently. And, and in fact, he makes that clearer again in verse 18 when he says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. It's yielding to the leadership of God's Spirit in your daily life. So what does that look like in, in just very practical terms. When we talk about walking by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, like I said, we'll develop this more down in verse 25, keeping in step with the Spirit. But in very practical terms, I, I'll give you three things. What I, I, I think we could put here is what it means to walk by the Spirit. One is, it is consciously, regularly yielding to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. It is verbalizing in prayer, in confession, Holy Spirit, I need your help. I need your strength. It is, it is that awareness that is not, not just assumed, but is a conscious statement on my part that I need to yield to you. I need you to lead me in this moment, especially as we're walking into situations where we know temptation is real, where we know the potential for conflict lies. It's in those times that we need to be praying, Lord, I pray that your spirit would control my thoughts, would control my actions. When he talks in Ephesians 5, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. He's talking about controlling influence. Don't be under the control of the substance, but rather be yielded to the control of the spirit. And, and, and so the starting point in this is me consciously, regularly thinking about how do I give up my fleshly desires and yield to the control of the spirit. And one of the ways I do that is prayerfully saying, Spirit, help me in this situation. Control me. I am yielding, seeking to yield to your leadership in this. Second thing is meditating on God's word. 
It is reading, studying, thinking about God's word so that the spirit can take and use that truth and bring it to bear in situations. That's why Jesus said the spirit will remind you of the things that I taught you. As we meditate on God's word, the spirit now uses that as the, as the food, if you will, to, to nourish us, to help us in situations, to bring to mind when we're in that situation of temptation, his clear direction. And then third, we also follow the leadership of the spirit by seeing fleshly desires for what they are, by being honest about the desires of the flesh and not blame shifting and not making excuses. Our culture surrounds us with the idea that immorality, lack of integrity, laziness, procrastination, whatever it is, our culture surrounds us with the idea that eh, there's nothing wrong with that. It's okay. You don't need to worry about it. And if we are going to yield to the leadership of God's spirit, we are going to identify these fleshly desires for what they are, that they are sin. And so if, if my tendency is to react to my spouse in anger, the, the culture may say, that's ah, just sort of your personality. That's who you are. Spirit says, no, that's a fleshly desire that is sinful. You are to react in loving kindness and mercy. See this for what it is. See this, this lust or whatever this is, this dishonesty, this whatever the sin is, see it for what it is. See it as a fleshly desire that is to be warred against, that is to be fought against, that we are to take seriously enough to be asking the Spirit to help us put this to death in our lives, that it is that serious to us. If we truly believe that we are engaged in warfare with the desires of the flesh, we will yearn for the strong leadership of God's Spirit. Those of you who have military service, I'm sure I, I don't, but I, I suspect you understand this a whole lot better, of desiring somebody who leads you with integrity and strength and wisdom and valor, and, and there's somebody that you want to follow into whatever the situation is. And that is what he is calling to us when he says to yield to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. We have a perfect leader who desires nothing but the best for us, don't undermine him. Don't seek to try to downplay his commands or, 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 or compromise on them. We are to yield to him. So we'll, we'll unpack this more over these next couple of weeks of this the, next week and just the outcome of submitting to the flesh and submitting to the spirit and keeping in step with the spirit. But, but I think we need to get this, and that is, Verse 16 says, when we yield, when we walk by the Spirit, he says, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. God, in his kindness, is saying, if you will walk by the Spirit, if you will submit and yield to him, he is guarding you. He is holding you up in these times. He is protecting you. And in fact, even in verse 18, he says, if you are led, again, it's conditional. If you are led, meaning if you are submitting to the Spirit, you are not under the law. What he means by that is it's not that the law is in entirely inconsequential, but he's con contrasting the old ways where everything was about do's and do nots. Maybe before I was saved, I, I sort of did things because I felt some sort of binding that I had to obey this. He's saying, you're now under the gospel of grace. If you are led by the Spirit, you are now empowered by the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ to live a life that is pleasing to God. It's not the law's sway over you anymore. It's now the, the, the grace of the gospel that enables you now to obey and to live different. Galatians 5 sets before this, this wide open opportunity. What will you do with it? 
He's told us what not to do, but he's also told us we're engaged in warfare about that. And so we must yield to his spirit and desire to walk by his spirit and serve others lovingly. Let's pray together. Father, we believe as we have looked at this passage that this freedom that we have in Christ came at a great cost. As we gather in just a moment for the Lord's table, we are reminded of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, his crucifixion and suffering, his bearing in his body, your wrath against our sin is a reminder to us of how costly this freedom is that we have in Christ. The fact that we have been released from the bondage of sin and the condemnation of the law is because, Lord Jesus, you gave yourself in our place and suffered what we deserve. We thank you for that. We thank you for this freedom that we have in Christ. We thank you for the opportunity that it brings. Help us this week, we pray, to to use our freedom in Christ well, to strive to be in submission to your spirit, to look for others that we might serve with our freedom, that we might glorify you and reflect our Savior. Father, if there's anyone not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, would today be the day that you would cause them to see the, the costly sacrifice of the Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Cause them to see that it is only by trusting in him that there is life and hope and forgiveness. And that in Christ, there is freedom. Thank you for that freedom. Help us to use it well this week. Help us to identify the desires of the flesh, to engage with those desires forcefully, firmly, with truth, to counter them with your word, to yield to your spirit for the strength and the power to resist them and to put on in their place godly behaviors that reflect our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.